You're listening to a Roddenberry podcast. Hold on there, partner. We'll be right back. But right now, time for Tales from the Mean Streets with Genealogy, a Roddenberry podcast. Episode 4 Court Escape. Welcome to another episode of Mission Log Genealogy. I'm Norman Lau. And I'm Earl Green. This is a Roddenberry podcast, and we're still trying to make it the Roddenberryest podcast ever, because we're rewinding to the beginnings of Gene Roddenberry's career as a TV writer, and the beginnings of TV writing as a career. This week, Court Escape, the one where Mr. District Attorney Paul Garrett tries to thwart a criminal's escape involving a series of highly coordinated Elevator shenanigans. I will be back with trivia in a moment, but first Norm is going to tell you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth on how to reach us. Genealogy is meant to be entertaining and informative, but it's also the beginning of an ongoing conversation about the works of Gene Roddenberry. Drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com and join us on X, formerly known as Twitter, and Facebook at missionlogpod. While you're at it, leave us a review and a rating at Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast platform. And since we are diving into the historical archives, if you have any information regarding Gene's work, or if you have any details that can help us produce the most accurate historical account possible, please contact us so we can make any corrections or additions if needed. And please remember your comments could be used on future installments of Genealogy. And now, Trivia Court is in session. All ears for the Honorable Earl Green presiding. There's actually very little in the way of trivia specifically for this episode, so let's talk context. This is Gene's first Mr. District Attorney script from 1955. In 1954, however, color television was just becoming a thing in the United States. That year's Rose Bowl parade, if it wasn't the first color television broadcast, using the NTSC color video system in the U.S., was among the first. Color TVs hadn't even hit the consumer market yet, so to see the Rose Bowl parade in color, you had to go to a public place where a color TV receiver had been set up by one of the television manufacturers as an advanced promotion for the color TV sets that would soon be on the market. The NTSC color TV standard was less than a year old at that point, and one of the main criteria for that system in broadcast engineering terms was that it would still display a correct black-and-white picture on black-and-white TV sets, which would still be around for quite a while, because a 17-inch RCA black-and-white TV would set you back $189, so for inflation, that's $2,157 today. The brand-new 15-inch color TV sold for $1,000, Now, that's $1,000 in 1954, so that's over $11,000 in today's dollars. So the Durants probably had one, but the rest of us, not so much. Now, whether you're watching in black and white or color, in 1954, there are four American television networks, CBS, NBC, ABC, and Dumont. ABC and Dumont were in a running battle to not be in last place. And who was keeping track of who was watching what? The A.C. Nielsen Company had been collecting very bare-bones ratings information since May of 1950. 
And by the way, as much modern media historians who boil things down to five-second hot takes like to call Dumont a failure after it went off the air in August 1956, Dumont was actually a major innovator. They were the first to bring live broadcast of an entire season of NFL football to American living rooms coast-to-coast and also broadcast some select NBA basketball games. They were also the first network to sell advertisements to multiple sponsors within a single show rather than selling the entire show as well as editorial control of that show to a single sponsor. Now, you remember the episode Wife Killer with its gallon of milk laced with salt? as if that would actually do anything? Why wasn't the milk laced with some kind of drug? Because Mr. District Attorney was then sponsored by the company we now know as Bristol Myers. So salt it was, and obviously there was not going to be a Morton's sponsorship. If you want to learn more about Dumont, I have a reading recommendation for you. There's an outstanding book by David Weinstein called The Forgotten Network, Dumont and the Birth of American Television, published in 2006 by Temple University Press. That's just a taster of the environment in which this show and the early stages of Gene's career unfolded. But for now, District Attorney Paul Garrett was back on the case. All right, you all know why I'm here. The syndicate doesn't want Jake Munson in prison. He's too big a man, carried too many operations in his head. We've bought witnesses the best legal talent. We even tried to reach the jury. What's your angle? It's very simple. We're going to spring him. If you're thinking of bail, there's not a chance. I didn't say anything about bail. We'll get him out with this. He's in a Hall of Justice cell. The place is crawling with police. He's right. This is no hick town. The tanks here are just like a state pen. We're not going to break into any jail, gentlemen. We're going to take Jake Munson right out of Superior Court. When crime rears its head, District Attorney Paul Garrett is the man who organizes the law enforcement effort to stop it in its tracks and bring the criminals to justice. Act 1. A banging gavel brings the courtroom of the Honorable Franklin Starr to order. The defendant, Jake Munson, is a state gangland boss, 50s, overweight and balding, but still a respected figure in his circles and always acting the part, except for today. Bearing down on Munson with grave intensity is District Attorney Paul Garrett, who reminds both him and the jury that Munson precisely testified to times, dates, and names that had previously been placed into the record at the start of this trial, especially regarding a meeting with a man named Joe Beasley. Even though Garrett is exasperated with Munson's sudden and convenient memory loss, the canny DA tricks Munson into contradicting his earlier testimony about his acquaintance with Joe Beasley. As Munson sits there like a cornered animal, Judge Starr adjourns the proceedings until tomorrow morning at 9 a.m. A visibly defeated Munson is then led out of court by an armed marshal. Elsewhere, a well-dressed man named Trey passes through the door of a train station and is met by Wick, a fit young man with an unusual star tattoo near his right thumb. As Wick takes Trey's bags, Trey purchases a newspaper from a nearby rack and reads the headline, 
Gangland boss faces conviction. Wick then walks Trey to their cab, which takes them directly to an apartment where certain men are waiting. Dedrick greets Trey and Wick cautiously before welcoming them into the well-furnished apartment. Trey immediately makes it known that he's in charge, that no one eats, goes for a walk, or does anything unless he says so. He then tells his new crew why he came all this way. The syndicate sent him to take care of Jake Munson, who they consider to be too much of a risk in the hands of the authorities. Trey has been ordered to liberate Munson from his current predicament. His plan is to exploit the far less superior courtroom rather than breach Munson's more fortified cell at the Hall of Justice. Trey was specifically sent by the syndicate, as his new team discovers, because he is painstakingly meticulous, intelligent, and well-organized, and he expects the same from every member on his team. Every architectural layout, every aspect within and with outside the courtroom, must be meticulously memorized. Aside from his tactical prowess, Trey's appearance and behavior are typical of the types of customers the syndicate serves, those who commit crimes while sporting silk shirts and perfectly manicured fingernails. When Trey tells Wick and Dedrick that they won't try to flee with Munson, but instead will transport Tim to a location where the police won't bother to check, they are both taken aback. They will then flee in plain sight. Trey persuades his team that the only way his scheme will succeed is if they practice so much that they can perform their duties in their sleep or even blindfolded. The court reconvenes the following morning. Standing in front of Judge Starr and the jury, Paul Garrett makes his final remarks. Garrett asserts that Munson is a high-ranking boss inside organized crime, despite the fact that he has never been explicitly connected to any specific crime. After resting his case and after the judge adjourns to let the jury deliberate for their final verdict, Paul Garrett runs into an old friend, Lieutenant Riker, who congratulates the DA for a job well done prosecuting the Munson trial. Later, Garrett settles in to listen to the jury's verdict when court resumes. During this time, Trey and his friends all take their predetermined positions inside and outside the courtroom. Judge Starr asks the jury foreman if they have made a decision. The foreman responds, We find the defendant, Jake Munson, guilty as charged. And as if on cue, Trey, Wick, and Dedrick break into the judge's antechamber, put on clown masks, arm themselves with pistols and shotguns, and then exit via the judge's chamber door, which enters the courtroom. The fourth gang member was assigned to secure the escape elevator. Trey and Wick gather Munson and flee after securing the chamber and disarming the marshal, but not before Garrett notices a star-shaped tattoo near the right thumb of the masked man who held Garrett's head at gunpoint. Act 2. Trey, Wick, and Dedrick have successfully escorted Munson to the secured escape elevator. After revealing themselves, Munson turns towards Trey and compliments him on the ballet-like orchestrated rescue. As the plan continues to unfold, just as they practiced, one of the gang members hands Munson a change of clothes so he can hide in plain sight amongst the tourists when he hops from courtroom elevator to the adjoining tower elevator. Meanwhile, on the ground floor, the elevator starter is puzzled while watching the city hall elevator's floor indicator timing. Paul Garrett dashed to the elevators after inspecting the hallway for gunmen and determining that it was safe to exit the courtroom, helplessly watching the floor numbers count upwards from 10 to 11. Garrett then rushes to the court reporter's office and contacts Riker to give him the lowdown. Munson has been snatched from the courtroom. Three men, 
and probably a fourth outside. Two with sawed-offs, wearing business suits, rubberized masks. He orders Lieutenant Riker to get to the hotshot to try and cut them off. Back at the Main Street elevators, a very calm, cool, and collected four-man crew step out of the elevator and stride very casually past the elevator starter, who at first is preoccupied with the elevator's timing and speed, but is startled to find a prone figure sprawled on the floor. Garrett can only idly watch by as the getaway car flies off into the horizon, watching from a window above. Lieutenant Riker appears unexpectedly on the scene. He claims that the elevator operator was knocked out, possibly suffering from a cracked skull, and never saw his assailant. The elevator starter didn't have much more to add either. Riker informs Garrett that aside from the masks found in the elevator, the only other significant clue they have is Garrett's description of the man who held him at gunpoint, the man with a star-shaped tattoo on the webbing near his right thumb. Both Riker and Garrett know that in four hours, once the clock strikes five, rush hour begins and half a million commuters will flood traffic with cars, buses, and trains. Garrett and Riker begin systematically searching their files for their proverbial needle in the proverbial haystack and take nearly a dozen calls about potential leads, none of which pan out. And then Garrett picks up the file for one Joe Wickford Smith, also known as Wick, whose profile as a small-time hood adorned with the signature star tattoo is similar enough for Riker and Garrett to consider Wick a person of interest. After staking out several locations, including Wick's shabby apartment, Garrett and Riker finally track down their suspects to Trey's apartment building. With additional police units surrounding the building, Garrett and Riker storm in, exchange gunfire, and finally subdue Trey, Wick, and Dedrick, but Munson is nowhere to be found. Garrett tries to intimidate Munson's whereabouts from Trey, but he knows he's too cool a customer to break under pressure. Knowing that he's running out of time, Garrett quickly reviews all of the seized evidence on site at Trey's apartment, sketches of the courtroom, the elevator, elevator timing schedules. That's it. Garrett and Riker race back to City Hall and find and question the elevator starter. He tells Garrett that the elevators did strangely pause for about two and a half minutes, long enough to throw the timing off between elevators. More importantly, long enough for Munson to get off on a different floor. Garrett has it figured out and Riker heads towards the elevator. Whistles blow as the clock strikes 5 p.m. as Jake Munson stares at his watch intently. Believing that he is in the clear, he rides the elevator down, grinning all the while that he has pulled off the perfect escape right from under the noses of Riker, who exits the elevator car and blocks Munson's path, forcing the mob boss to surrender at gunpoint. As he's placed into custody, Munson laments the fact that if he waited one more minute, he would have been able to blend in with the crowd and disappear. One lousy minute. Garrett reminds Munson that in prison, they don't worry about counting minutes when they are staring down, counting years. The end. Excellent testimony on the case there, Norm. Thank you so much. You know, mm-hmm. every time I saw Hall of Justice in the script, I started having Super Friends flashbacks. Meanwhile, yeah. at the Hall of Justice. Yeah, I kept expecting Aquaman to be hanging around. But... The thing is, I know full well, there are lots of overblown names like this in actuality. Um, In the town where I used to live, they built a really large new prison complex. And there's this sign out by the entrance that you turn into from the highway to go there. And the, you know, this big sign says it's the county justice center. You know, it sounds like 
Wow, you know, you need Space Ghost or The Tick to say that. Justice! <laughs> so were you waiting, like, during commercial breaks for, like, those, what was it, two stars and then one star to make those sound effects and then transition from one scene to another? And if you can find those sound effects, you are the hero that I know you are. One of the things that you and I are incredibly grateful for uh, is kind of like our, our Discord community and our After Dark conversation that we have live every Thursday night uh, for our Patreon subscribers because we've been getting some great feedback on genealogy. And one of the things that I brought up that some of our listeners out there may not have had the opportunity to either watch or experience the actual opening sequence of Mr. District Attorney because we're trying to put like the tone of this show in context of the period that it was created for, especially specifically 1954 and 1955 where Gene Scripps resigned. But I just want to explain like how this whole opening sequence is uh, unfolds in order because it does really paint a very specific picture of something that you tried to describe Earl in our discord thread about genealogy about Mr. District Attorney that it's supposed to exist in any town USA, but it's very specifically Los Angeles in, in the way that the credit scenes are, I guess, are put in order in some of the credit scene copy. This also kind of harkens back to the opening of Dragnet, because, you know, that also showed the same building in Los Angeles. If you've never been to Los Angeles, do you know what that building is? Do you necessarily right, exactly. know where it is? So it can mm -hmm. still be any town USA. And, you know, I think to, to that point, they try to make it a bit nonspecific so it will sell into, you know, markets in the Midwest or the South or East Coast or what have you. So in the slides that, you know, comprise the opening credit sequence, you have the, the layovers or the, the cell, I guess they would be cell sheets that were like laid over the the backdrop image and it the it's the image of the los angeles city hall building which again it's very iconic um, especially if you're a fan of dragnet and then you have this narrator voiceover when you're looking at the words mr district attorney and the los angeles city hall building mr district attorney champion of the people defender of truth guardian of our fundamental rights of life liberty and the pursuit of happiness you know it's that radio voice and maybe that's the point Maybe that's the point so that it brings you over to kind of like that radio tone um, of which Mr. Mr. District Attorney is also famous for. But if one voiceover wasn't good enough, there was a second voiceover right after the narrator. And it was Paul Garrett as Mr. District Attorney with this incredibly interesting echo effect as if he was actually being sworn in on his first day as the district attorney. So Paul Garrett... In mid-oath says, and Earl, I'd love for you to take a stab at this. And it shall be my duty as district attorney not only to prosecute to the limit of the law all persons accused of crimes perpetuated within this county, but to defend with equal vigor the rights and privileges of all its citizens. So now, with that wonderful, echoey, marbly, cavernous, you know, city hall type feel... You're kind of getting a tone now of like what this show is supposed to be about without actually even seeing anything but the facade of a building. But then you have these four slides, which go into kind of like uh, the rest of the credit sequence. I find, I find these interesting, too, because the first slide says David Ryan as Mr. District Attorney. It doesn't even say he's Paul Garrett. 
He's just Mr. District Attorney, no name. So he can be either. He's interchangeable. He's kind of ubiquitous, just kind of like the vehicle of law and justice. And then as that dissolves into the next slide, there are two semi-disclaimery kind of slides. The first slide says, in the production of the television series, Mr. District Attorney, scenes in the criminal investigation division, crime laboratories, Bureau of Records, communication, arson division, and similar locales contain actual photography filmed in authentic locations. Exactly which authentic locations are they talking about? Or is it just a blanket statement of these specific ones somewhere in California? We shot it in an actual set that actually exists. We saw it on actual ground where people walked on. Yeah. <laughs> you know, so it's, it's just this wonderful, generic, but strangely placed disclaimer. I wonder, you know, you're talking about, you know, they're, they're only naming him as Mr. DA in the opening credits. It, that was probably shot before they started shooting episodes. I wonder if they knew what his name was at that point. It dissolves into this next slide where it says, we gratefully acknowledge the cooperation of the police department, fire department, and office of the district attorney of Los Angeles, California. So, and then the, the slide after that is the fourth slide. And of course, you have to get your production slide in there where it says a Ziv television production logo, because that obviously is you know, important for the producers to show off who they are. But the cooperation of the police department, fire department, and office of the district attorney of Los Angeles why those specifically do you think? Is it because that's the partnership of kind of like the first responder units that gives the show the authenticity that they need? Well, remember we were talking about how they probably have like one or two days with actual emergency vehicles to film, and then they're going to recycle that footage forever. You know, True. That could be where some of that comes in, and... They probably, they may or may not have someone, like, in the DA's office vetting vetting things like, you know, no, we would never actually do this. You know, who's your technical advisor? Who told you we did this? <laughs> oh, it's, it's a soft-duty cop over here. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Uh, yeah, Robert uh, Wesley, I think his name is. So the last time we saw a character named Riker was in Defense Plan Gambling in Gene's first script. Then he was Sergeant Riker. In this script, he's Lieutenant Riker. And I'm wondering if, if Riker is one of Gene's characters or if we'll actually see Riker if we have the opportunity to watch the entirety of Mr. District Attorney see him promoted and for what reason. What do you think? I think continuity was a luxury at this point. And you have to keep in mind, uh, you know, versus... I don't know how often Riker showed up in the show. But the last time he showed up in one of Gene's scripts, which may mean he's just it's just this name that Gene carries around with him, like we speculated earlier. It's been almost a year since we saw this character. They may have forgotten he was a sergeant. <laughs> True. Yeah. That makes a lot of sense. I mean, these kind of things happen, you know, in production. And and today it's a little bit more of a badge of honor. I'm saying that very lightly. You know, for people to keep score on those uh, production mistakes and create content videos about those because, I don't know, reasons. Some of the interesting, I guess, character descriptions, you know, at the beginning of the script. And for Trey, who caught my attention, just as a general character, because I think he's fascinating, and I'll talk about that later. His description says, hired gangland expert, slim, 
dressed natalie that means stylish and neat here's the weird detail southern or new england accent because to me earl i don't know about you but to me that's that's what gangland sounds like to me oh yeah either a southern or new england accent i mean why would you want to choose i don't know new york or new jersey i mean come on right southern new england they're pretty much interchangeable (laughs) again i wasn't around back then i don't know how prevalent or not that organized crime was in the southern states what's really funny about this is you've got uh, either a southerner or a new england person in los angeles yeah i mean they're going to be incongruous no matter what and maybe that's the point i'm gonna get letters i mean we are kind of like you know in the heyday of elliot ness and al capone you know and lucky luciano and all of that gangster stuff so maybe i don't know maybe gene knew something that we didn't okay so scene 16 and the tanks here are just like a state pen okay you see they obviously do not want anyone to sack munson back to the tank nicely done you you mentioned the untouchables and I also had that thought because this this kind of heist getaway setup, really, it kind of made me think Untouchables. But it turns out Gene is way ahead of the zeitgeist here. But I kept thinking to myself that, you know, oh, Gene must have been watching the Untouchables here. And, and meaning the original TV version with Robert Stack. But a little voice in the back of my head said, you know, you're getting your dates wrong. And so I double-checked. Uh, the Untouchables TV series did not premiere until 1959, so we're way ahead of the curve here. Now, in scene 28, this kind of grabbed my attention. This is a line that Garrett says, Thank Providence, we have laws which make equally guilty men who direct such crimes. Now, I don't think he is thanking a town in Rhode Island. Why wasn't this thank God? Because in January of 55, we are six, maybe seven months out from when President Eisenhower added one nation under God to the Pledge of Allegiance. That phrase was not in the Pledge of Allegiance as originally written. But religion was coming into common use as a political tool, especially since we were well into the Red Scare. And supposedly that phrase, one nation under God, was going to counter that great post-war bogeyman of godless communism. In that context, thank Providence sounds a little bit out of place. But then again, as soon as Eisenhower added that phrase to the Pledge of Allegiance, which is a thing that happened on June 14, 1954, Flag Day of that year, there were almost immediately civil lawsuits against using that phrase. Now, it's also known that Gene had views concerning organized religion. And so I find myself wondering, was this Gene gently stepping around, putting the big G in the script? Or was this standard practice for TV writing at the time? And everyone, please know, I'm not trying to make this for or against religion. This is more of an etymological and cultural anthropological exercise here. Yeah, and I'm wondering if it would be different if it were acted as opposed to read. So, you know, we, we find a lot of these, uh, these strange, I guess, anachronisms, strange to us, that's for certain. You know, we weren't, you know, of that era specifically. So when we see things like that, 
they really do jump off the page at us. Um, speaking of jumping off the page, uh, there were a lot of set changes, a lot of set changes and a lot of not only guest stars, but also a lot of extra cast members. And I know that shows like this were done on a budget and I'm not sure if one episode would garner for whatever reason, a slightly higher budget than most, but set locations do, they add to the bottom line and set changes, set interiors, extras on set, et cetera, et cetera. So I'm wondering, do you think by the time that this script was submitted, that Mr. District Attorney as a show was already doing better performance-wise in ad revenue for their advertises, uh, and, and maybe the script editor said, you know, Gene, you have a little bit more money on this one. Let's do a little bit more of an ambitious script with set changes in locales. Well, we are operating from another final master script, and the date on this one is January 14th, 1955. I was unable to find a verifiable air date for this episode, but I'm assuming it was also early 55. So we're in season two of Mr. D.A. here, and quite a few of Ziv's shows only ran a single season. So by Ziv's standards, you know, we've got a hit on our hands here. And there's always a nice little purple patch for a show to be in if the management's willing to spend more money to maintain that ratings lead or to, you know, maintain the show's quality and keep it on the air. Now, that being said, there are just as many instances historically of shows suffering budget cuts even after they're a demonstrable hit because, hey, people dug it just the way it was. Why spend more? And often, if one episode is extravagant from a budget standpoint, the next episode or three would be very self-contained, very budget-conscious. So it could be for the next two weeks after this, Paul Garrett was rescuing kittens from trees, for all we know. Now, the flip side of this is look at what the interior sets are. Courtroom, hallway outside courtroom, apartment, more hallway. Now, I'm sure Paul Garrett's office is a standing set, and it may be the only standing set that the show has, but the rest of these are kind of stock for a crime drama or legal drama. They could easily be borrowed from another Ziv production or rented from another studio altogether. The elevators are really the most exotic element in play here, and you could probably go on location and film in front of real elevators easily enough. And, you know, just for the interior of the elevator, you basically, I mean, you got to build a closet with a wild wall or two so you can have the camera filming. Maybe it, as expansive as it looks on paper, maybe not that much of an ask from a budget standpoint. You're talking about the elevators, and uh, in Act 2, something very specific like jumped out at me in the script. And there's this scene that says, Interior, City Hall, Main Street, Elevators, Day. Scene 72, medium shot. And then it said, Starter. I had to reread exactly like what I was trying to figure out. Starter of what? Like, starter of the scene? Car starter? What are they trying to say here? What is Gene saying here? And it just says, he is looking up the elevator floors, indicators, perplexed. Scene 73, elevator floor indicator. It's a large circular dial showing a number for each floor, and it doesn't move. Scene 74, starter, he's looking and he's frowning at the dial. I had no idea what I was reading. I think I reread that passage like 20 times, and they're like, oh, it finally hit me. The elevator starter, 
after looking it up and making sure I, I was correct in my assumption, the elevator starter is an actual profession or was maybe still is. I don't know. But then in city hall, this person's responsibility was the scheduling and the supervision and the coordination of the elevator operators and their responsibilities so that they and the elevators themselves would provide reliable service to these large buildings and their employees. They're also in charge of signaling operators and to establish the time schedules for each car. So when people are going up and down, I guess, maybe because there were no escalators at the time, I guess elevators really needed to run on time in order to get people to and from their office building floor you know, in the most efficient way possible. So, yeah, but it's just one of those things like wind wings, like we talked about last episode in police academy, that's just not in the vernacular anymore. And it just is strange to see. At least with the wind wings, the moment he put it in the script, it's like, oh, so that's what that is. This was a completely alien concept to me because I personally have never ridden in an elevator that was not 100% a machine. So this was this kind of cracked me up because it's hard to fathom. It's like, wait, this was this was a job? Yeah. Here's something that may be just part of the culture of 1955, 1954, 1955, when Gene was writing these scripts. But tattoos were actually a real way to identify criminals. I know they're ubiquitous now. I know that a tattoo is probably a very difficult way of pinpointing a criminal in a lineup. But there is an entire sequence where Garrett and Riker are just basically looking through a handful of photographs of the usual suspects that met Wick's particular look, build, height, and tattoo. But if you tried to do that today, that would almost be impossible. I mean, they didn't even bother with fingerprints. They just said, okay, he's this height, he's wearing this, and he has this tattoo near his right thumb. I find that remarkably refreshing in a way where they just don't have to go all CSI and FBI and, you know, uh, international Interpol database to find this guy. Yeah, go around to all the tattoo parlors in L.A., find out who did a star on a hand. Here's something, though, that was cut. I'm not sure if purposefully or not, but there was a missing sequence, Earl, that I kind of panicked about. And I texted you and I said, um, guys... Well, I texted you and John. I said, guys, uh, from pages 32 to 35, there's an entire interior scene when Garrett and Riker stormed Wick's apartment room and it was gone. <laughs> so I have to make up something. So I just kind of loosely said, hey, they just chased Wick to the house over at Trey's and, you know, arrested them there. But it was weird because uh, we, you know, I haven't really experienced that before. And um, I guess that happens. Yeah, this was kind of unexpected. You were you were reading it first because you were on the recap this week. Mm -hmm. Overall, though, it's amazing how much stuff is retained in the archives. Otherwise, we wouldn't be looking at this show having enough material to potentially run two or three years. If two missing pages is all we've run into so far as far as missing material, that's a win in my column. All right, Norm, CORE is back in session, and we have stuff to talk about. Slightly more serious, maybe a little less TV trivia time here. What jumped out at you with this episode? When In breaking down the script, there's a lot more involved with just 
dialogue back and forth, uh, maybe a little bit more insertion of like Paul Garrett into all the different uh, permutations of the plot, you know, from the very beginning to the very end. You know, I'm not, and I'm not saying that that's not the case here because he was obviously there at the beginning. But what I wanted to do is is focus on nearly eight pages of fully scripted dialogue, kind of narration, explanation, a lot of set direction on one very particular, and I would see this kind of like as a montage scene of Trey and his crew practicing the heist. This is something that we have not yet been exposed to in Gene's work for Mr. District Attorney. And frankly, I don't want to jump our own timeline here, but I don't remember a format like this where you have this much time obviously in written form and probably in shooting form dedicated to just this rehearsal of a plan because in today's day and age sure it's something that you would probably see or expect criminals to do over and over and over again let's take say Sean Connery and Catherine Zeta-Jones you know in that movie where they played the cat burglars and they're doing basically everything blindfolded with lasers and trying to thwart, you know, the museum's security measures. I mean, that sure, that's something that you expect nowadays, but back in 1954-55, I'm wondering if that is something that is a cost-saving measure again because there were so many different changes and so many different characters that were in these scenes. More importantly to that, I wanted to kind of like get into like the psychology of Trey cuz Trey is I think one of those characters that he wasn't typical you know, he was flown in specifically by the syndicate organization. And he is well-dressed, and he's fit, and he carries himself with a certain personal pride and acts accordingly and very much represents the sophistication and stylings of this syndicate. Why do you think that was important for Gene to focus on so much in terms of the way that Trey was described in the character sheet breakdown in page one, the way that he established himself as being this cool, calm and collected type of gangster. I mean, is he trying to break away from the obviousness of say a New York or Chicago style gangster and want to bring something different to the table? I think Trey is supposed to be, the fixer or one of the fixers for whatever organization this is you know they're talking about you know this this isn't some hick town so again they're trying to keep it non-specific as to where this is happening and yet at the same time you know we're saying okay we're dealing with some real security here but trey strikes me as a character you know he's he's come in from out of town because these local rubes just can't handle this job and his bosses are like okay you're going in and you're taking care of this problem for us. This is what we pay you to do. A la, kind of like the Winston Wolf character in Pulp Fiction played by Harvey Keitel. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. Yeah, that's what I was thinking of too. But there's this also uh, question I want to ask you about writers, because you're a writer and one of our favorite writers, J. Michael Straczynski, and probably advice that he was given by Harlan Ellison there's an old cliche about writers, write what you know. And I hate to say this on record, but I have to do it to make a point. One of my guiltiest pleasures is watching the Final Destination franchise movies. 
I'm not saying these are the greatest movies in the world, but what fascinates me, and, and you'll see how this relates to my point, what fascinates me is how all of these murders, these quote-unquote Rube Goldberg style of killings are so intricate that the writers had in some way had to have daydreamed or thought about these things in a way that are just familiar to them. I don't know if that's the case. It makes sense to me. By the way, um, are you familiar, Earl, with the term the Rube Goldberg machine, what I just mentioned? Yes, very. For those of you out there who aren't, a Rube Goldberg machine is, you've seen these before. It's where, like, you drop, like, a marble, like, down a tube, then it sets off a certain series of events where uh, each, like, milestone that's been triggered by this Rube Goldberg machine marble uh, triggers another series of events, and all of a sudden, someone is being fed an entire meal of tacos or burritos, or Einstein is being fed his favorite dog food can, of which he was not there to eat because Doc Brown already took him before the clocks rang 8.05. You know what I'm talking about, right? You know what I'm talking about. That's a Rube Goldberg machine. Anyway, back to my point. If the writers draw on their own experiences, they write with exacting detail things that they know. So in this case, Gene writing for Trey and then Trey in turn instructing all of his crew to do certain things, to execute the certain plan, to be able to abscond with Munson from the courthouse. I'm wondering if Gene somehow was sitting in a courtroom one day thinking to himself, how would I break a criminal out of this courthouse? Because he wrote the story. And maybe he said, I wonder if I can ask somebody for the architectural plans. I wonder if I can talk to the elevator starter. I wonder if I can write up on the elevators and see what the timing is. I mean, think about it this way. In Space Seed, what did Khan do? The very first thing he did when he was in sickbay, aside from almost cut McCoy's throat, he asked to read the engineering plans of the ship. Because... Using those engineering plans, he was able to take over the ship. That seems very similar. But I know it's not the same, but hey, you know what? If you don't ask, you don't get. I don't know. What did you think about that? Do you think that he is the kind of person, that Gene was the kind of person that just went so deep into his research that this would be plausible for him to be able to, to pull something like this off as a writer, as in, as in his imagination? Well, if you're supposed to write what you know and you run into something that you don't have that much experience, you educate yourself, you know more, and then you write. But the thought also occurs, I wonder if this is in any way like something that actually happened. Because as a police officer, Gene would have been very privy to that kind of information. And this is so detailed, so specific... That I found myself wondering, okay, was some part of this, the specificity of Munson hasn't left town, all the cars speeding away are red herrings, he's still in the building. I wonder if that specific detail was something that had turned up in a case before, and that becomes the seed of a story. But, you know, the big thing to learn here is that there is nothing in the world more suspicious than the search history of someone who writes crime mysteries, especially murder mysteries. You just, you don't even want to look. Yeah, clear those search history engines, you know, so that's good advice. Good to know. Okay, so one thing that we did bring up 
Uh, and, th- and this is something that we don't really have a lot of continuity, as you said uh, earlier in observations with gene scripts and how they fit in with Mr. District Attorney overall. But this is kind of like the second time that we've seen an organized crime, quote unquote, syndicate referenced in, in his scripts, at least the scripts that we've studied so far. So you had defense plant gambling, and then you had Miss Thornberry being kind of like the underboss over Zarat, but still answering to someone higher up in a criminal organization or a syndicate. And this is another reference here in this, in Court Escape, of another underling, Trey, having to answer to the higher bosses of this syndicate. So I'm wondering, since we haven't seen all of the Mr. District Attorney episodes or scripts, if this is something based specifically on Mr. District Attorney's world-building continuity, or if it's something that Gene found more interesting to write into his scripts so that he would have the promise or the possibility of creating his own miniature storyline subthread in his own scripts that maybe script editors were like, well, that's kind of interesting. Maybe we'll pick this up again because he's actually writing something that adds to the overall story instead of your bottled episode of the week. Here's a crazy idea. Now, I don't think this is actually what's happening. What if this is still the case of the defense plant that Paul Garrett (gasps) is trying? What if this is the end game of that case? Wow. What if he's knocked over all the dominoes Zaret sang like a canary the moment he got knocked on his butt, and I'm sure Miss Thornberry, you know, started talking soon after that. What if this is the the home stretch of that case? Oh wow, that's awesome! You know what would have made that really just that much more of a specifically of that point would have been if, say, one of those two executives was uh, the the meeting that that Munson had like with instead of Joe Beasley instead of uh, that character maybe like the Mr. Fields character that would have been wild now again that that's that's really almost more of a joke than anything because continuity was a a luxury look at at Riker's ranks but you know keeping track of stuff like this for context reruns in 1955 were only just starting to become a thing again this aired eight, almost nine months after defense plant gambling, so I don't think that's the intention. But it's vague enough, you know, we can connect more dots than they had time to. All right, Norm, as we do with the whole Mission Log family of podcasts, Here at Genealogy, we have come to the end of the show where we ask ourselves, what was the message here? Were there morals? Were there meanings? What did you get? What is your testimony (laughs) from the court escape, Norm? Well, I'm going to give you the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the, you know, to stay in the character of of the tone here. You know, we've actually said this. John and I have said this on Mission Log on occasion. Sometimes episodes just don't, right? They can be a very entertaining episode. They can... They can actually even give us really good character information and even probably put the characters through a, you know, a semi-decent arc you know, for their participation in that episode. But not every single Gene Roddenberry episode in that fandom always had some kind of moral meaning or message, and certainly not the subsequent series. Uh, I, it's, it's definitely the purview of those series you know, underneath the auspices of being a Star Trek Gene Roddenberry-inspired show. 
But sometimes a story is just a story. Sometimes an action adventure or in this case, it's a, let me see, how many adjectives did I apply to this? A trial slash verdict slash heist slash escape slash manhunt slash twist reveal slash capture episode. It is what it is. And I didn't, you know, I, I tried and, and you and I do, a, I think, a, a pretty good job, a yeoman's job of trying to find that Gene Roddenberry meeting. But sometimes it's just not so obvious. I mean, this is a very paint by numbers episode and it's very entertaining. And I'm sure it was probably more entertaining in 1955, you know, to its intended target audience. But I do like, I'm not exactly sure if this is something I would consider immoral meaning or message. It's just something that I found that it interested me personally that a character like Jake Munson, this you know, middle-aged gangland crime boss, underboss type character, that he would have this kind of a reflective moment. You know, he said something about regret, you know, the one minute that he should have waited so that he would have been able to escape. And now, as he says in this line of dialogue, he says, one more minute, one more lousy minute, and I'd have gotten away in the crowd. Why does one minute have to mean so much? And I was thinking about how many times, and I think we've all done this. I know I've done this, you know, on occasion, if not more than once. I know that we focus on that one period of regret, you know, where these moments, like they shape our past and obviously our present and maybe even our future. And we have that almost kind of like, you know, emotional bargaining that we make with ourselves or whatever God power or authority that you believe in, where you say, grant me this one request, grant me the ability to change this decision and I'll do anything. That's Munson at the end of the story. If just let me escape and I'll do anything, I'll do anything. I'll, I'll go straight. You know, I will give up my life of crime, you know, whatever God he believes in, whatever power he believes in providence, Earl, bringing it back to providence, just let oh, me slip the cops here and I will go on the straight and narrow. That's the Faustian deal. That's that's a troop well honored throughout narratives. You know, maybe Gene was trying to kind of just etch that into this episode a little bit towards the end, because usually in this last scene, as we've seen in the last three scripts is where that small subversion happens, you know, in the plot. But, you know, going all the way back to Gene Roddenberry, turning this around, I want to end this on a lighter note, especially when it comes to regret, because there's this film called Galaxy Quest, which is inspired by Star Trek, which was created by Gene Roddenberry. And there's a scene in Galaxy Quest where they talk about this device called the Omega-13. The Omega-13, according to Brandon, a character in the movie, describes it as a matter rearranger affecting a... 13-second jump to the past. Now, Gwen DeMarco, played by Sigourney Reaver, says, why 13 seconds? That's really not enough time to do anything of any importance. And then Jason Nesmith, played by Tim Allen, says, it'd be time to redeem a single mistake. Now, maybe Munson was just short one Omega-13. But, you know, all joking aside, you can't change that. You know, you can't change that mistake that you made. All you can really do is accept it and move on and hopefully do better. So I know that's very Pollyanna-ish, you know, of a moral meaning or message, but it is of the time. So that's what I got. I'm not saying it's great, but I'm saying that that's what I got. <laughs> How about you, Earl? Well, I mean, it, is it Pollyanna-ish or is it an evergreen? Because some of this stuff sticks around and becomes regarded as common sense because it's true. Yeah, yeah. I was very hard-pressed to find 
any kind of message, moral, or meaning here myself. And we can pat Paul Garrett on the head for keeping a cool head, paying attention to the details. But looking at this from a writing standpoint, really enjoyed this one. It's a really tight, well-thought-out, pacey little crime thriller in 20-odd minutes. And Now, if I thought Police Academy was a bust, this one was a win. This this has really become the episode, and I know I keep saying this week after week. Okay, now this is the episode I really wish I could watch instead of just read, because I would love to see if the execution of the physical production compared favorably to what was on the page. And there is some really slick writing here. That last line of Garrett's, when they capture Munson, mm-hmm. you know, where you're going, they don't worry about minutes, they count in years. That's that's just slick. Give it up for uh, <clears throat> Robert Wesley, everybody. See, I'm I'm interested that you said that because do you think that that's better, similar, or different than when he said something similar to Tom Durant at the end of Wave Killer, where he's talking about you know it's better that like you got the low shock voltage of the doorknob rather than the ten thousand volts you would have gotten in the electric chair. Isn't that kind of the same thing? Paul Garrett, as a character, we're not experiencing any moral struggles with him. He is not second-guessing himself. He has the personality of a really sturdy chair. (laughs) But the secondary characters are where it's at. And so, you know, perhaps these parting thoughts with Munson, that's really where we get as close as we get to a message with this episode. Stay tuned, everyone, for the next episode of Mr. District Ottoman. Mission Law Genealogy is produced by Roddenberry Entertainment. Special thanks to the Roddenberry Repertory Players. Our cast this week featured Doug Robertson as Trey, Bill Smith as Wick, and David Takechi as Dedrick. If you would like to support us directly, you can do so at patreon.com slash missionlog for early access to shows and the Mission Log Discord. If you have any material that might be of interest to us that isn't already in the Roddenberry archive, drop us a line at missionlog at roddenberry.com. Our website is missionlogpodcast.com. On the next genealogy, Patrol Boat. Special thanks to consulting producers Matt Esposito, Homer Frizzell, Tom Kozak, Julie Miller, Mike Richards, Mike Shabel, Paul Shatwell, and David Takachi. We'll be back next week with more of your favorite programs. This concludes our broadcast day.
This is a Roddenberry podcast. For more great podcasts, visit podcast.roddenberry.com.